to study astronomy. I knew I wanted to be an astronomer. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 4th of May 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy and this week our special guest is Dr. Elodie Thilias who is going to tell us about exoplanets, debris disks and big data. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Elodie. Hello, Brendan. It's a pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Elodie Thiliers. Elodie has just completed her PhD at the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia. One of her supervisors was Professor Sarah Madison, who we spoke with way back in Episode 4, and she recommended we speak with you, so it's finally great to catch up. Now, before we get into the astrophysics, we'd like you to tell us a little about your background. Where did you grow up, Elodie? And tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. So I'm from the north of France. I was actually born right at the border between France and Belgium. And even as a kid in primary school, I was already very interested about science and very curious about nature. I remember being fascinated to learn on how the weather works, uh, what have the different type of volcanoes. And astronomy was just, you know, another topic that I was really into. And when I was about eight years old, my father actually bought me a small yellow telescope. And I remember starting to stare at the moon or at the northern star during the night. So I guess it's, this is how it started just as a kid. Fantastic. What a great start. And then you went on with school, obviously. Uh, Tell us about your senior school days and your early ambitions. Actually, when I was growing up, I wanted to become more like an archaeologist because I really enjoy learning all languages. I learned Latin, ancient Greek when I was at school and I was really into it. But I actually fell back in love with astrophysics right in the middle of high school when I started to learn about Newton's law, the laws of Kepler during my physics classes. I was really fascinated by the fact that you could explain what was happening in the sky with just a bunch of equations on the blackboard. And it was really like eye opening to me. And from there, I decided to read more about astrophysics, start to watch some sci-fi show on TV. And within a few weeks, it was really life-changing, and I decided to become an astrophysicist. 
Fantastic. So then you went on to the University of Paris-Sud and you completed your bachelor degree in fundamental physics. What were your major subjects and areas of interest in those early university days? Uh, it was actually astronomy, of course. <laughs> I remember having uh, two extra units as part of my uh, degrees in fundamental physics and both uh, extra were in astro. So the first one was to mainly learn about the math, gravitational forces, and to learn more about the math in the general relativity law. And the other unit was to learn more about the life circle of the stars and what have a different type of galaxy and how they come to be formed and how they come to be unbound. So I could say that already at that stage, I was really into astronomy. That was really my main focus. Fantastic. And then you did some outreach work at the observatory at Lille in the north of France. Was that fun? That was actually pretty cool because the goal of my internship was very simple. I had to go through all the old archives, go through the document in the old photographic lab, and I had to collect those documents and report back on the history of the observatory. So as someone who really enjoyed history, it was actually very fun to go through a hundred years old catalog of binary star or kind of classifying the old photographic plate of galaxy, reading the astronomer's diary about the Nazi occupation, and also try to kind of decode the technical plan for the early version of Hipparchos, which was one of the first satellites to be launched to do astrometry. So it was quite of a unique experience, and I ended up writing a 40 pages report just on the history and the heritage of the observatory, and then this document was then used to create brochure and signs for visitors. So now if you go at the Observatory of Lille, you can see some sign, and it's basically thanks to the report that I wrote back in my internship. Fantastic. What a great introduction. So then, in the summer of 2011, you started an astrophysics internship at Swinburne University in Australia. Tell us a little bit about how this came to pass and how you first came to visit Australia. So as part of my master's degree, it was actually mandatory for me to do some work experience abroad. And I had the choice between doing some observation-based project in Hawaii or to do a bit more theory-based project here back in uh, Melbourne. And I really enjoyed the topic which was proposed at Swinburne, which was studying the collapse of molecular cloud due to the galactic tidal forces in the galaxy. And therefore, I decided to choose Australia and to join Swinburne for a period of three months. So I came here for the winter 2011 and actually learned a lot during my time at Swinburne. I really enjoyed working with the people there. We had a great, great diversity of people, so it was really fulfilling for me. And then I also had a really great time visiting Melbourne and I basically fell in love with the city. And I guess that's why I'm back uh, in Australia now. Awesome. Diversity is a wonderful thing. So then back in 2012, you're back in Paris at the Observatory of Paris and completing your master's degree. Now, is this where you started to develop your passion for debris disks? At that time, actually, I was mostly studying uh, planetary dynamics, so learning how planets gravitationally interact with each other and what are the effects of general relativity on the planet's orbit. But during just after my master, actually, I did an extra uh, internship for another period of three months, and I was working primarily on image properties from image which were taken by the telescope Herschel. So it was a really brand new experience, and this is at that time that I really learned a lot about those debris disks. 
And I really, yeah, fell in love with the subject. So as a PhD topic, I basically tried to combine both of my favorite topic, which was debris disk and planetary dynamic. So then in 2013, you had the big move to Australia on a more full-time basis. Culture shock much, Elodie? Actually, not that much. Since my first visit in 2011, I was really looking forward to come back to Australia. So I was really prepared and really open to embrace embrace it also. Not really a culture shock, maybe more like a culture awakening in a way, because <laughs> I was so uh, looking forward to coming back that, you know, I was ready for it. So I guess my only real shock was the awful taste of Vegemite. But beyond that, I was, uh, I was quite prepared. <laughs> Fantastic. So now it's... 2017, and for the last four years, you've been embedded at the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne, being supervised by Professor Sarah Madison and Professor Jared Hurley, and you've just been awarded your PhD, and congratulations. Tell us about your PhD thesis, Elodie, Searching for Hidden Exoplanets in Debris Disks. What techniques did you use to gather your data, and what tools did you use to analyse your data? What were your essential findings? So, yes, my research is primarily based on the observation of debris disks. Yep. And those debris disk images were primarily taken by the Hubble Space Telescope and the Gemini Planet Imager. So I didn't really take the observation. I just used the public archive. Yep. But so on some of these images, we can see some interesting features in, into those debris disks. They're not perfectly circular. They're not perfectly symmetric. But some of them show actually weird asymmetric features. Some of the debris disks are actually very elliptical and the position of a star is really offset compared to the position of a disk center. And some of the disks don't present a smooth belt of dust or asteroid. They just present some bunch of clumps of dust really uh, doesn't seem really well organized. So actually the goal of my research was to test if there was a hidden planet system which could explain this weird shape of a debris disk. So to do this, I used the Swinburne supercomputer and I ran basically hundreds of numerical simulations for each debris studying. And by uh, modeling the gravitational interaction between a potential hidden planet and a debris disk, I was trying to isolate what kind of planet could explain the asymmetry that we were seeing in those images from the Hubble Space Telescope and from the Gemini Planet Imager. So what I've done during this physics was I basically work on three specific systems, which were known to have a very asymmetric disk. And for all of these systems, I kind of come up with prediction for what kind of planet could be hidden in such system. And I really hope that the next generation of telescope will be actually able to image directly those planets and maybe confirm the theory that I've been using to predict this. Very good. Thank you. Now, I'm just going to go off the script for a moment. Yeah, sure. I'm getting the picture that a lot of research in astronomy isn't a lone researcher sitting in a laboratory or staring into a microscope or working at a computer on their own. It sounds like there's a lot of teamwork involved in research in astrophysics. Can you tell me a bit about the collaborations you are working on? Yes, so that's correct. Being uh, an astronomer is actually being part of a part of a team, really, because 
have, uh, you need, there's different stages in research. You have some observations. Some of them can show some weird things. Then you need to have people working to explain those weird observations. And then you need someone to be able to kind of merge the observation and the theory. So you really, you really need to work with a different bunch of people. So uh, I was in contact with a few people uh, from the um, from the US who are actually very good at taking observations and doing some uh, radio uh, observation of debris disk. Then yep. I was working with people from the University of Toowoomba, which are very good in studying the dynamics and running numerical simulation. So I kind of work hands to hands with all these people to, to anyway learn from them and, you know, run my simulation and learn how to decode the observation. So yeah, you're right. It's really about being part of a good team if you want to get the work done. Yes, it actually sounds like a community. Exactly, that's correct. And okay. we all learn from each other. And, you know, some people have a very specific data set that you want to use. So you ask them, you ask for their help. Everything. So I think it's really good to have this open community because sharing the information allows us to make progress much more faster than if you were working on alone by yourself. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Elodie. So Right now, you've just finished taking your parents exploring Australia, and you're working as a data scientist at Deakin University. What are you looking forward to? Tell us a bit about this current work you're doing, and what is going to be next for you in your astrophysics career? So in astronomy, when you hear that the future instruments like the Jeps Webb Space Telescope, all known debris disk on A-star, or that the next speaker telescope, will be able to detect at least a new thousand debris disk. It clear to me that the technique that I was using during my PhD, which was basically modeling each disk uh, by itself, so each disk individually, well, when you will have a sample of thousand debris disk, this technique will, will, will not work really anymore. Yep. So I think as astronomers, especially with the next generation of instruments, we really have to start diving into the big data era. So we need to learn how to use tools like machine learning or artificial intelligence if we want to be able to keep up with the flow of data that we're going to receive from the next. I think the, be, becoming a data scientist and learn all this new technique was really the most logical step for me. I felt like I needed to really explain our skill set, um, especially if I want to continue to study debris disk with the next survey to come. I will basically need to perform a study that I've done during my thesis, but over a large, large, large sample of debris disks. I'm not too sure what my future is in terms of astrophysics career, but I know that right now the tool that I'm learning, which are machine learning using neural network, using artificial intelligence algorithm, everything will be very crucial for the science of the future. I think you've got some fantastic building blocks there because big data certainly is the way everything is going. Exactly. And when you hear that instrument SK will basically deliver on a daily basis 10 times the amount of the data that is delivered to the internet yeah. uh, nowadays, you, know, you really need to step up your game in terms of you know, uh, technical skills. Now, the microphone is all yours, Elodie, so if you wish, you can give us your personal rant or rave or obsession with astrophysics and science and outreach. So actually, during this interview, that made me look back at my career path, and I realized that I'm actually very lucky and I'm really grateful that I had a couple of good teachers back in high school who took the time to inspire me to answer all my questions, and I also was very lucky that I had like 
someone like my dad who agreed to drive me to conference on and others outreach events. So what I really want to say is thank you to all the volunteers and all the teachers at school who takes time to do some outreach because I think it's really important to inspire the next generation of kids and teach them about astronomy. So I just want to say thank you to those people who worked hard to communicate our science. And I think that's about it. Thank you very much, Dr. Elodie Thilias. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you, Wendy. Next up, Dr. Ian Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? Well, there's several things that's up in the sky this week. To start off with, our friend Jupiter is looking better and better in the evening. Although Jupiter's past opposition, that is when it's closest to the Earth and appears at its biggest, the difference between now and the time of opposition is, is quite minute. But Jupiter is getting high in the sky at a reasonable hour, so you don't have to wait up to midnight to get your telescope out to get a good view of Jupiter. Jupiter has been quite close to the star speaker for some time, but now it's moving away, and in fact, it's almost in the middle between the bright star speaker, which is Alpha Virginis, and dimmer star Beta Virginis. So it actually looks really cool. You've got this triangle shape in the sky formed by Jupiter and Gamma Virginis. Its name's Porima. It sounds like porridge. Jupiter's <laughs> between speaker and porridge. Um, so it makes a quite attractive sight in the sky. And even better, Saturn is now rising at a reasonable hour. You still need to wait to quite late in the evening to have decent telescope views of it. But Saturn is now well visible in the evening sky. It will be quite nice at the moment with the moon setting relatively early. Over the next few days, it will be very nice to get your binoculars and scan around where Saturn is. Saturn is just in front of where the heart of the galaxy is. Obviously, the heart of the galaxy is thousands of light years away, but it's just in front of the heart of the galaxy, very close to the Jupiter and Lagoon nebulas. So if you've got your binoculars, which you've been using to observe the moons of Jupiter, the Tripiton and Lagoon nebula will look quite nice if you scan between Saturn and the core of the Milky Way. Of course, if you've got your binoculars out, you might try and pick up Saturn's moon, Titan. Titan is visible in strong binoculars under dark skies. Wow. So unlike Jupiter's moons, which are quite easy to see with binoculars, you really need a decent pair of binoculars and a dark sky sight to pick uh, Titan up. Titan's a bit under magnitude 8 compared to the moons of Jupiter, which are much brighter. Very good. What else is up there at the moment? Okay, if you're into getting up early in the morning, then you'll see Venus blazing brilliantly above the horizon at the moment. It's looking very nice indeed. And if you've got a small telescope, any telescope really, you'll be able to see Venus in its waxing crescent phase. It's no longer the ultra-thin crescent it was, and it's shrinking in size as Venus moves away, but it's still at quite reasonable size and still a, and still a decent crescent. But now is a, good, a very good time to be seeing Mercury. It's a little bit low in the twilight at the moment, 
but over the next few days will rapidly rise uh, into the morning skies and the sight of Venus and Mercury above each other will be really nice in the mornings. In fact, this is probably the best morning apparition of uh, Mercury this year. If you've got a, a decent pair of binoculars, you should be able to see Mercury and Uranus close together at the beginning of the week. Excellent. So, yeah, Uranus is uh, around about magnitude 7, yep. and you should be able to, or, uh, actually, no, at the moment, it's, it's a little bit under magnitude 6. So that should be a relatively easy object to pick up with binoculars. Mercury will outshine it substantially, but it'll be quite interesting to, to see them close together. They'll easily fit into field of view of 10 by 50 binoculars. And if you've got a wide field eyepiece for your telescope, you should be able to get them into a 24mm or a 30mm eyepiece. They'll just fit into a 24mm eyepiece and nicely into a 30mm eyepiece. Mercury will be an obvious phase. Uranus will be a pale, tiny disk. If you look around about an hour before sunrise, you should be able to see it just above the horizon. If you're up in the morning looking for Uranus and Mercury, you might as well be on the lookout for the Eater Aquarians. Now, the Eater Aquarians are a southern hemisphere meteor shower. They've got reasonably good rates, so we can potentially expect to see a, a ZHR of 40 this year, although uh, this means that in Australia you'll probably be able to see one meteor every three minutes if you're out under dark skies and one meteor every six minutes if you're out in the suburbs. Unlike many other meteor showers, the Eater Aquarians have a very broad peak. So if you start looking around about the fourth or so, you'll start seeing some decent meteors. In Australia, it's best from the morning of the 7th to the morning of the night. That's when you get the highest rates. If you're getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, you'd like to see more than one meteor every 10 minutes. So if you get up on the morning of the Sunday the 7th, that will be a, a good time to see a, a decent number of meteors. If you're interested in, in watching these meteors, you, like I said, you do have to get up quite early in the morning. Not too early because the radiant, that is the apparent a spot in the sky where the meteors appear to come from. That doesn't really rise till about two o'clock. So before, around about then, you'll lose approximately half the meteors because they're shooting down below the horizon. So right. it's, it's yep. good to wait till about four o'clock. And then the uh, radiant is going to be uh, reasonably high. Now, if you want to look for the Eater Aquarians, if you look almost due east, you'll see Venus is your obvious signpost. Venus will be very, very bright and low on the horizon. Yep. Then just above Venus, off to your right, is the bright star Fomalhaut. Yep. And off to your left is the bright star Altair. In that triangle between those three bright objects is where the radiant of the Aquarius is. Now, you don't look directly at the radiant of that radiant, so what you should be doing is letting your eyes travel around from that central point out to either the north or the south. You know, if you stare fixedly on the spot, you'll probably miss meteors because they'll be occurring just outside of the range of your eyes. And you're also most likely going to feel fatigued and go to sleep because you're staring <laughs> at this one point of the sky for minutes on end and nothing's happening. Meteors, as I keep on saying, meteors are a bit like buses. You'll wait for ages for one, and the whole bunch will turn up at one time. So while the average rate for the suburbs may be one minute, one meteor every six minutes, they won't turn up 
one, one six metres later, one. You'll find there's big, little, big, little flurries. Uh, some will be very bright. Some will be very dim. And then there'll be a whole whole swatch where nothing happened. You go, oh, I'll go in. And just as you decide to go in, another fantastic meteor screams across the sky. So you start decide to wait a bit longer. And this is because the Earth is passing through the debris left over from Halley's Comet? This is correct. The Eve Aquarius is one of the meteor showers that is associated from the, with the debris from Halley's Comet. This year is predicted that the uh, Earth will come very close to a one of the dust clouds from Halley's Comet. Fantastic. So we end up with these uh, multiple bands of dust clouds that um, are more or less following Halley's, uh, a uh, Halley's orbit, but not quite, so we get to pass through them. And this year, we're going to come very close to a dust cloud. We might see a bit more of an increase in rates, but we may not. There's a bit of discussion about whether or not we'll see a really, real increase in rates or whether it'll be too small to be seen. The prediction is that we'll pass through the dust cloud on May the 4th from 14 to 18 hours universal time in Australia that's May the 5th from about midnight to, to uh, 4 a.m. However, as I explained in Australia, the radiant doesn't rise till really about 2 o'clock. So just as about we're getting, getting to the really good time for observation of the Eater Aquarians, the outburst should be coming to an end. But still, if you, if you feel like being up on the morning of May 5th, that's Friday morning here in Australia, you know, have a look out and see if you can see a few more meteors than normal. Fantastic. So we've got two hot dates, one for Friday the 5th early in the morning and one for Sunday the 7th early in the morning. That's correct. Excellent, Ian. Now, do you have a tangent for us this week, Ian? I have several tangents uh, that I've been, I've been mulling over. As you know, almost everybody in the astronomy community knows, Cassini is making a series of dives through the rings of Saturn. Oh, yes. It finally makes its uh, final entry into the atmosphere of Saturn, ending its decade-long love affair with the ringed world. And we get really excited about the rings of Saturn. But something that happened only uh, the past few days it takes us a little bit further away and uh, this, these are the rings of an asteroid. There's an asteroid called, I have to get the pronunciation right. This is uh, an asteroid called Charicola. Yep. And it's a centaur. It's one of the asteroids that orbit out beyond the orbit of Jupiter. It turns out that this has a ring system and we are familiar with the rings of Saturn. There's also rings around Jupiter, uh, Uranus which can be seen when you really up the exposure of these worlds. But having an asteroid with rings is it's a little bit mind-boggling. It's also possible that another centaur called Chiron has rings as well. We detect these rings by looking at the dimming of starlight as Charicolo is going to move in front of a reasonably bright star. We yep. use these occultations to get, get a better feel for the size and shape of these objects because by having observers at different locations, you can work out how wide and the shape by the duration of the occultation of the star. Yep. But of course, unusually, we saw, as well as the occultation by the asteroid itself, we saw two occultations by the rings as they moved in and moved out over the, the star. So what's happened only in the last few days is they've developed a mathematical model of these rings. 
Now, I mean, the rings are, are to have a set of rings around an asteroid is pretty mind-boggling. Wow. And so we've yep. been trying to understand, or astronomers have been trying to understand them, and they've, now they've got a decent mathematical model of the rings, and it suggests that these rings are, are quite ephemeral. They may only be around for about 100 years or so, depending on how big the particles are. Wow. If the particles are really, really tiny, they might be able to stay around for a couple of million years. But it's likely that if the particles are larger from, say, a collision uh, or an impact on the main asteroid, that the ring will only be around for something like 100 years. What's the period of this asteroid? That's a very good question. Chari Colo is 62.7 years and it orbits out between Saturn and Uranus. Yep. In fact, it's, it, it it's, uh, grazes the orbit of Uranus. Awesome. This brings us back to exoplanets in that there's been a lot of new observations of exoplanets. And one question we have is, are there rings around uh, exoplanets? And how will we determine if uh, there was a ring around an exoplanet? One of the things we could look for is the dip in the starlight yep. when uh, exoplanets pass in front of their sun. And there's been a lot of exciting findings recently, including the most uh, terrestrial planet in, in, in uh, what is most likely, likely the most habitable zone that we've found so far. Finding exoplanets by the transit method uh, is really hard around sun-like stars like our own. But we've been having a lot of success about of finding them around red dwarfs. Red dwarfs are a lot smaller and a lot dimmer than the sun. Yep. And so a terrestrial planet will make a bigger bite out of the light of a red dwarf. Okay. So maybe that our, uh, if we can form rings around terrestrial worlds, and maybe that our first ringed world will be discovered around a red dwarf star, and that would be really quite cool. That would be excellent. Yeah, and that's what Kepler does. Yes, we now know that we have 2,950 confirmed planets. Uh, most of these are due to Kepler. Yep. Of, uh, we have another 2,504 Kepler candidates, things that look very much like planets appear to be confirmed by other means. There's 601 solar systems, that is, multi-planet systems. Of these 601 multi-planet systems, of these worlds, 12 are potentially habitable. That is, they're theoretically in the habitable zone where the conditions for liquid water are, are, are just right. If these uh, results hold, then there may be a, a around 1 million Earth-like planets in habitable zones in the, the uh, Milky Way. And when I mean Earth-like, I mean terrestrial worlds around stars like our own. It may be that life is common in the galaxy, but the life, uh, life will be found on worlds very different from our familiar uh, uh, world uh, around our little warm yellow sun. Indeed. And I feel a bit sorry for those planets when they pick up episodes of I Love Lucy. <laughs> yes. Indeed. And we're in for a very exciting time over the next few years. And we'll leave this probably for another episode. But with the James Webb Space Telescope coming online and the 30-metre telescope coming online as a terrestrial telescope, we're probably in for some pretty exciting times when they attach spectroscopes to those telescopes and start analysing atmospheres.
Yes, that's something to be explored in detail in an upcoming episode because our ability to determine the size and composition of atmospheres around worlds is coming along leaps and bounds. We already know that there's an atmosphere around the worlds of the TRAPPIST-1 system. The atmospheres are not dense hydrogen atmospheres that would smother the worlds. They're more likely to be uh, atmospheres that are not too dissimilar to our own, at least all in, in terms of being uh, not super dense like Venus and uh, not dominated by hydrogen or methane. I'll look forward to that discussion. Fantastic, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. I'll remind our listeners if they need to find out exactly when and where to look for the Eta Aquarid meteor shower. Go to Ian's Astro blog. You'll find it just by doing a quick Google search. Well, thank you, Ian. It's been great speaking with you again. And it's been fantastic speaking with you again. Next up, the news. Of course, the big news over the last two weeks has been the triumph of the Cassini-Huygens mission a 20-year journey to Saturn via Jupiter with stunning images of Saturn's moons and rings being all over the internet. We'll be hearing and seeing much more of Cassini as it completes 22 instrument dives through Saturn's rings before a well-aimed and deliberate crash into Saturn itself in September. So rather than focus on the mission, I thought we'd travel back in time and find out about Cassini the Scientist. And I've sourced this report from a number of places, including the excellent European Space Agency website. One of the most important astronomers of the 17th and 18th centuries, Jean-Dominique Cassini, became interested in astronomy through his early fascination with astrology. Now note his original name. Giovanni Domenico Cassini was born in Perinaldo in northwest Italy, not far from the French border, in 1625. Galileo at this time was 71, and the science and art of making and using telescopes was developing nicely. Now, because of Cassini's interest in astrology and the emerging discipline of science, he was employed by a rich amateur astronomer, Marquis Cornelio Malvasia, in Bologna. Here, Cassini indulged his passion for the skies using the Marquis' instruments and was taught by Jesuit scientists. His work was exceptional in its quality and precision and formed the grounding of his later prestigious academic positions. In his 30s, Cassini worked for the Bolognese government and simultaneously held the chair at the University of Bologna. His work included observations of a sun, but as he obtained more powerful telescopes, he turned his attention to the planets. Cassini needed bigger buildings to house these new instruments. He placed his Meridiana instrument in the San Petronio Cathedral, and in 1666 he used observations of Mars to calculate that the planet rotated once every 24 hours and 40 minutes. We now know it to be 24 hours and 37 minutes. In 1668, Cassini compiled tables showing the positions of Jupiter's satellites, and these were used by the Danish astronomer Oli Roma to establish that the speed of light is extremely fast, but not infinite. On hearing of these great works in 1669, 
King Louis XIV of France invited him to Paris to join the recently formed Académie Royale des Sciences. By 1671, Cassini was director of the Observatoire de Paris and two years later became a French citizen, changing his name to Jean-Dominique. He discovered Saturn's moons, Iapetus in 1671, Rhea in 1672, and both Tethys and Dione in 1684. In 1675, he discovered what is known today as the Cassini Division, a narrow gap separating Saturn's rings into two parts. He also proposed that the rings were swarms of tiny moonlets, too small to be seen individually. We now know and describe them as pebbles and dust. He died in 1712. The joint NASA-ESA-ASI spacecraft that was launched 20 years ago in 1997 and arrived at Saturn in 2004 bears his name. Officially, it is known as the NASA-ESA-ASI Cassini-Huygens Mission. Thank you, Cassini. See you in two weeks. Bye now. Radio Wave!